0: Joshua chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 1. This is God's Word. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges, and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And we'll end there at verse 13. The last two chapters of the book of Joshua, I'm sure most of you will know, record Joshua's farewell address to the nation of Israel and uh, to the leaders of the nation in particular. Just like the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, the last letter that he wrote that we have, Joshua has reached that point in his life where he could so easily have said what Paul said. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Joshua knows that his death And departure, his exit, his exodus from this life is imminent. He's an old man, advanced in years. He knows it's the end of an era. His departure is going to usher in an opportunity for the people of God to make a new beginning. And he's got many things to say to them in these last two chapters containing his farewell address, but here in verse 11, I think in many ways, he sums it all up in a sentence. It's a sentence, not without warmth, but it comes across with a challenging warning note in it as well. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. If you have an authorised version, King James Translates it, take good heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Now, it would be very easy to think that this is a rather strange thing to say to these people of all people at that particular time in their history, in that particular place. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. I mean, in the light of all that God had done for them, even in the recent past, never mind the distant past, surely that kind of statement is inappropriate and unnecessary. It's quite remarkable that he should speak like this to a people so blessed, so privileged over so many years, a people with a history and a heritage second to none. These were the people of whom God would later say, You remember from the prophet Amos? You only have I known of all the families on the earth. These were the people that God referred to in the book of Isaiah as Israel, my chosen. In the book of Jeremiah, he had specifically said to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And surely in the light of their election, if I may use that word, their redemption, and now their substantial possession of the promised land and the ongoing plan and purpose of God, surely it's superfluous for Joshua to say to them of all people, and to their leaders in particular, be very careful to love the Lord your God. The riding on the crest of the wave. They had entered, conquered, and possessed the promised land. It had been allocated to the different tribes. But as a wise old owl, it's highly likely that Joshua saw trends appearing among the people of God during the final days of his earthly life that were not God honoring. He probably saw things going on all around him that deeply concerned him in the lives of many people. As he looked out and listened, as saw and heard, pondered and prayed, he discerned that all was not well amongst God's ancient people. Metaphorically speaking, we would say he heard alarm bells ringing. He saw red lights flashing. And from the box of experience, and he's got plenty in that box now, he knows that people can change with the passing of time and not always for the good. I don't know for sure why he spoke these specific words, but I do know this. They came from the lips of one of the greatest and godliest leaders ever in the history of Israel. He's not waffling. And I also know that the next book in the Bible, literally as well as chronologically, is the book of Judges, where the recurring note concerning the behavior of the people of God is this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the striking significance of these words in verse 11 must not be overlooked. When Dr. Alan Redpath I was a student at the time, the Faith Mission Bible College. He was in Charlotte Chapel when he preached a a series of sermons on the book of Joshua, middle of the last century. I'm as old as that. He said this about this text. If I could choose the subject for the last sermon I ever preached, this would be my text. Alan Redpath knew in his day, Joshua knew in his day, and you and I surely know in our day that it only takes one generation, two at the very most, that's all. And with the passing of time, things can change. Truth can be replaced with error, light can be replaced with darkness, freedom can be replaced with bondage, order can be replaced chaos, and a confident hope can give way to total despair. Don Carson puts it better than I could ever put it. He says, even after times of spectacular revival, reformation, or covenantal renewal, the people of God are never more than one generation or two away from infidelity, unbelief, Massive idolatry, disobedience, and wrath. Without being over-melodramatic, I think what he's saying to us is this. Church buildings that once were filled can become empty. Lights that were never off are now switched off. Spiritual movements end up as stone monuments. Fruitful lives. Become fruitless, and the doors are closed. Now, I hope this is not the last sermon I'll ever preach. (laughs) You never know. But it is the text I want to bring to you, because I'll tell you why. I don't often get sermons out of my quiet times, but occasionally I do. God spoke these words to me personally. So I'm sharing it with you from the heart. You know, one of the greatest, richest, profoundest letters ever to be written to a group of Christians is the letter Paul wrote in A.D. 60 to the people of God living in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. In the first half of that letter to the Ephesians, his exposition of the doctrines of grace is simply masterly. In the second half of the letter, the way he practically applies those doctrines to everyday living in the world in the family In the gathered church, could hardly be better. The church founded at Ephesus was a great church to be part of. It had a high standard of teaching, high standard of doctrinal understanding, high standard of living as far as the Christian life is concerned. But it's more than interesting, it's frightening. It's frightening. That in the first of the seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of the Revelation, written before the end of the first century, it was the church in Ephesus that had lost its first love. It was only one generation later than when it had been formed. I find that rather scary. The people in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus, they still hated evil, they hated ease, they hated error, but they didn't love the Lord as they once did. The greatest danger facing the people of God in every age and at every age as we live out our brief lives in this wilderness of a world is for you, my brother, my sister, and for me to lose Our love, our first love for the Lord who first loved us. It's so very possible to fall away, to turn away, to walk away from a goodly heritage, to throw away the gathered treasure of a lifetime of spiritual experience, even in the closing stages, even in the final stretch of this earthly life. That's why Joshua said what he said to them be very careful. To love the Lord your God. See, what this text is doing is, it's reminding us that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is an awful lot more than knowing certain things. It's an awful lot more than believing certain things. It's an awful lot more than doing certain things. It's all these things, of course, but it is essentially about experiencing at a personal level the love of God in the gospel, and then for the rest of our days, returning, reciprocating that love and expressing it wherever we go. It is as John puts it in 1 John four nineteen: we love, we love him because he first loved us. So what I'm saying to you this morning is this, the God who chose to love us wants us to choose to love him not just like him love him have you heard of Leonard Ravenhill he wrote the book Why Revival Tarries he was a great evangelist last century when he crossed the Atlantic the two people he loved to go and meet were Keith Green the singer and A.W. Tozer and on one occasion when he's having a conversation with Tozer he said to Tozer I have found many people in your country who like God who like the idea of God, but I have found comparatively few Comparatively few who love Him. What God requires of us is encapsulated in the Jewish Shema, in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is all summarized as being what Christianity is all about by Jesus Himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That at least should be our aspiration, if not our achievement in this life. Christianity is not about keeping rules, going through rituals, jumping through religious hoops, making an appearance at meetings. It's about having a personal love relationship that goes both ways, With the Lord. That's biblical Christianity, isn't it? So if you're not a Christian, and in a congregation this size, there's probably people sitting here, and you've gone to church all your life. If you're not a Christian, a real Christian, you need to hear that. And if you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of that. Because if you don't love Him, I doubt very much if you know him. Now, there are three simple things I want to say by way of application. I'll be very brief. There's no point in writing a letter, is there, if you don't put an address on the envelope. This message is for you, and it's for me. And what it does is I think it was Jim Packer who said, let the text do the talking. You're not here to listen to me. We're here to listen to God. Let the text do the talking. (coughs) This text presents us with the challenge to be different. There aren't too many people around today who can be described as lovers of God. Luke, in his gospel, he wrote to someone called Theophilus. I've been trying to find out what does that word mean? Does it mean somebody who's loved by God? Or is it somebody who is a lover of God? And I understand it can be taken either way. So I ask you the question, are you a Theophilus? Am I a Theophilus? Do you know this morning that you are loved by God? Do you love God? Are we lovers of God? or Does that, does that come across as over-the-top language? Somewhat embarrassing? The world wants to squeeze us into its mold. The culture of today wants to squeeze us into its mold. Neither the world nor the culture will ever give up trying to woo us, seduce us, persuade us, tempt us to be lovers of self, lovers of ease, lovers of leisure, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of stuff, anything except being a lover of God. The core of sin, Mark Deaver once said, is to love what is not God as if it were God. And that was the problem at the end of the day with Demas, wasn't it? You've heard of him? One of Paul's team, well-known by some of the greatest saints who've ever walked on planet Earth, but you remember what Paul said to him in that last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy? And in chapter 4, it just so happens, Demas has forsaken me, he says, having loved this present evil world. There came a time in the life of Demas, and I would wager it didn't happen overnight, very seldom does, it's not a blow, it's a slow puncture, that's how this happens. He began to see the world as a playground instead of a battleground. How do you see it? Israel's track record and the history of the people of God down through the ages underlines the problem. How many of us this morning are sold out to God to such a degree that we have a jubilant pining to know Him better and to love Him more? How many of us this morning? want a more and more experience as the years go by rather than a less and less experience. You won't find any lovers of God in the world. But the big question is how many lovers of God are there in the church? You might have to go a long way to find somebody who really loves the law. I mean, go back in your mind's eye just for a moment to when Jesus put the question to Peter, remember? Three times he put it. Maybe the preachers are right. Peter had failed the Lord, denying that he ever knew him three times. So he was asked three times by Jesus Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I know there are different words for love in the Greek that are used and actually used in that passage but I wouldn't read too much into that just for a moment before you give your answer to the question think of Judas for a minute one of the twelve heard all Christ's sermons probably saw all his miracles went out on missionary work Gave the impression, nobody pointed a finger at him at the Last Supper. Gave the impression that he loved the Lord, but he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss, the very symbol of love and affection. He kissed the one who was the door to heaven. And did he end up in hell? poet puts it like this, it may not be for silver, it may not be for gold, but still by tens of thousands is this precious saviour sold. Sold for a godless friendship. Sold for a selfish aim. Sold for a fleeting trifle. Sold for an empty name. Sold for the awful bargain none but God's eye can see. Ponder my soul the question, will it be sold by thee? Jesus is asking you and me this morning the same question he asked Peter. Do you love me? That's all I want to know. Do you love me? I could ask the question do you read the Bible every day? Do you gather with the church every Sunday? Do you take time to pray? Personally, I mean, I hope we could tick all these boxes. These are the things you'd expect a a Christian to do, to make time to do, to take time to do. Doing these things doesn't make us Christians, but if we are, we will be seen doing all these things and much more. But the fundamental question we should all be asking ourselves from time to time and then seeking to answer it honestly is that question Jesus asked of Peter. Do you love me? What does it mean? Well, one of the things that will be true of the person who can answer that question in the affirmative is that it will mean that that person will be different. I mean, radically different. Stand out from the crowd. Might not be looked upon as being cool. Popular. Flavour of the month not being one of the crowd, not going with the flow, even in many professing Christian circles, the text presents us with a challenge at the very deepest level, to be different. Not to be a puritanical fuddy-duddy, but to be different, giving Jesus his rightful place in our hearts every day. Surely that is the irreducible minimum in someone being very careful to love the Lord their God. It means being distinctive, it means being decisive, it means being different. Are we prepared for it? But this text does something else. It presents us with the challenge to be vigilant. You will have noticed, it doesn't say in the ESV, be careful to love the Lord your God. It says, be very careful. In the authorised version, it doesn't say take heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. It says take good heed to yourselves. See, what he's doing here in this text is he's underlining, he's emphasising our responsibility. In other words, this is not going to happen unless by the grace of God you and I make it happen. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience a revelation that leads to a revolution in the depths of their being. Sometimes explained in terms of coming out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Sometimes put in these terms, passing from death to life. Now, I would submit to you that that's pretty radical terminology. Let's just call it regeneration. Let's just call it being born again. When I was a wee boy in short trousers in the mining village of Newt Hill just outside Motherwell, the only people I ever heard talking about being born again were the brethren. I thought this was a brethren thing. But it's not. It's a Bible thing. Jesus emphasized it more than anybody else. What happens? You receive a new life. You become a brand new person on the inside. There's a new dynamic at work in your life. It's brought you into this love relationship with the Lord. And it's that relationship that has to be maintained and sustained with the passing of time. As you face the world, the flesh, and the devil, every day you throw your legs over the side of the bed. But what Joshua is getting at in this verse is that if that fire is to keep burning brightly rather than cool down and burn low, we will need to be vigilant and begin to make right choices. He wouldn't have said it in the way he did if there was no need for it. You know, John Bunyan, he draws our attention to this in Pilgrim's Progress in his own peculiar way. He takes Christian on his journey into Interpreter's House, paints a picture for us in Interpreter's House to help us grasp the truth of what he wants us to learn. And he pictures the devil in Interpreter's House throwing water on the fire, burning in the heart of Christian to try and put the fire of love for God out if he can. But Bunyan goes on to tell us, behind the scenes, behind a wall in Interpreter's House, the oil of Christ's grace is being channeled towards the heart of Christian to help him see how he can keep the fire burning. And that's where the battle is won or lost. Now let me put my cards on the table if you don't mind a worldly expression. If God has lit the fire in your heart in the first place, it will never go out. If God has begun a good work in you, he will carry on and complete it. But I want you to know, and I'm sure you know as I do, you're a human being like me, you're a clay pot, the treasure's on the inside, but we're all clay pots. That fire can burn very low. What must we do? We must learn to avail ourselves of the means of grace so that on a daily basis we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so that we say no to sin and yes to him. We must take the time to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus, as Mary did, and listen to his voice. We must see to it that our devotion to him is not replaced by our service for him, as was the case with Martha, if I'm not being too harsh on her. I love those scriptures, and I'm sure you do too, that dwell in God's love for us. I mean, what is the Bible? It's the greatest love story ever told. Peter and Paul have much to say about it. Peter reminds us we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, which is a reference to God setting his love upon us, not just before we were born, but before the universe was created. Paul reminds us, doesn't he? I am persuaded. Persuaded? Persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. These men were very strong on telling us about God's love. But they were also very strong in no uncertain terms in their own language, telling us that we need to learn to keep ourselves in the love of God. There's nobody in this building who believes in the sovereignty of God more than I do. Ask the folks at Musselboro. They sat under it for 20 years. But I want you to know we are responsible people. And that requires effort on our part. And it's the only reasonable response to his great love for us. The one thing you and I must never do is to sit back and let God do it all. That is not what the Bible teaches. By God's grace, we are to wrestle and fight and pray and make deliberate, responsible choices and not always between what's good and what's bad, but between what's good and what's best. If we don't do that, the chances are we'll end up like Demas or somebody else. And can I just say this? One of these days in the Christian church, we really are going to understand Revelation 3, verse 20 in its primary meaning. So what's that? Well, It's one of the letters that was sent to the church in Laodicea. Who sent the letter? Jesus. What did he say? I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. Now, don't misunderstand me. Many people have come to Christ through that text. John Stott, I believe, was one. So I'm not saying that text can't be the means of somebody's salvation, but in its primary sense, it's Jesus knocking at the door of the church as if he's outside, we're all inside, and he wants to be in on everything that we're about. One final thing. This text presents us with the challenge to be different. It presents us with the challenge to be vigilant it presents us really with the challenge to be obedient. You know, where the rubber hits the road, that is exactly what this text is teaching us. It's like the old hymn. We don't sing it very often now. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, what is this love that Joshua is referring to? Is it the equivalent of agape, the love of the New Testament, which at times is expressed with a minimum of emotion? And the maximum of devotion, is it that love? Well, I don't know, but the love that's mentioned here is certainly not some kind of sentimental slush. It's not nice feelings, at least not all the time. It's not the feel-good factor. It's not us having the fuzzies inside. It's bound up with gospel obedience. When I was converted at 19, I had only read one book in my life. But the old folks in the congregation in Wishaw, which was my home church, they encouraged me to read books, biographies in particular, and autobiographies. And I've been doing it ever since, apart from other kinds of books. Not so long ago, I read the autobiography of Professor F.F. Bruce, the great brethren scholar. My wife, when she starts to read a book, she doesn't strike gold in the first chapter. She passes it over to me. I'm the kind of guy, when I start to read a book, it doesn't matter what it's like, I've got to finish it. That's just part of my nature, I suppose. F.F. Bruce's autobiography wasn't the most scintillating autobiography I have read, let me tell you. But I got this from it. You always get a wee gem somewhere. He says, love to God and obedience to God are so completely involved in each other that any one of them implies the other. Very simple. In other words, you can't think of the one without the other. If you want it from somebody else's lips, how about Augustine in the 4th century? He put it beautifully. He summed up the Christian life by saying, love God and do what you like. You know, when I first heard that, I thought, what? Love God and do what you like? That's dangerous. Oh, but think about it. There's no danger in that. He didn't say, make a decision and do what you like. He didn't say, get baptized and do what you like. He didn't say, join the church and do what you like. He said, love God and do what you like. And if we love God, what Augustine is really saying is, what you will want to do and what you will like to do will be that which he wants you to do and what he would like you to do. You'll want to obey him. Not in order to be saved, but in order to prove that you actually have been saved. I like John the Apostle. He fires from the hip. It's straight. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Strong medicine. You read the last two chapters of Joshua through, you see that Joshua is warning Israel of those things, those acts of disobedience, acts of partial obedience, acts of compromise, acts of convenience, that could so easily, using his language, become traps and snares and whips for their backs and thorns in their eyes. But he knows the remedy for all of it. He knows how we can avoid it. Just be very careful to love the Lord, your God. John MacArthur puts it in his own... Characteristic fashion. Never throw God the bone of your love without the meat of obedience on it. Jesus said, if God's your father, you'll love me. And I finish with these words from the German theologian, Tauler. As the bridegroom to his chosen... As the king unto his realm, as the keep unto his castle, as the pilot to the helm, so Lord art thou to me. As the fountain to the garden, as the candle in the dark, as the treasure in the coffer, as the manna in the ark, so Lord art thou to me as the ruby in its setting, as the honey in the comb, as the light within the lantern, as the father in the home, so, Lord, art thou to me. As the sunshine to the heaven, as the image to the glass, as the fruit unto the fig tree, as the dew unto the grass, so, Lord, art thou to me. Brothers and sisters, are we anywhere near that in our relationship with the Lord? Be very careful To love the Lord your God. Just one sentence and I'm finished. There will be no Baptists in heaven. I'm a Baptist pastor. There'll be no Baptists in heaven. There'll be no Presbyterians in heaven. No Methodists. No Anglicans. No Catholics. No Pentecostals. No Charismatics. Only Christians. People who love Jesus. People who know Jesus and people who are willing to spend their lives serving Jesus. I trust you're one of them. Just a prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to see its profundity and yet its simplicity. Thank you that you loved us. You didn't spare your own son in doing so. Help us in return to be very careful, to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.